Listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's going to stop Christ? Who's going to stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma. I'll start the show today with a quote from the Bible that will essentially be the main focus of this entire episode. Proverbs 16, verse 8. Verse 18. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Back in the 1930s, the late educator and theologian Herbert W. Armstrong, the most prominent televangelist of the entire 20th century, soon to be back then, was dealing with yet more haters and scoffers and scorners and mockers, as was often the case during his public appearance campaigns. In chapter 33 of his autobiography, available to you for free at thetrumpet.com, Mr. Armstrong does give a brief recap of his three-point campaign for reaching the largest audience possible with the good news of the coming kingdom of God. It started out with a radio broadcast every week. It cost $2.50 for the weekly Sunday slot. He had secured a $1.35 per week pledge from his members, from his supporters, but then he had to rely on God for the additional dollar and 15 cents per week to pay off that 250 charge for the Sunday radio program. He says here on page 457, faith was rewarded, however, and the other $1.15 per week always came, sometimes only a half hour before broadcast time. That's a strong lesson for God's work today, as done here in the Philadelphia Church of God, as we carry on the legacy of Mr. Armstrong, we uphold the glorious works that God did through him, and we strive to build on those and raise up the ruins of what he did. But oftentimes today, God's work does have to step out in faith. Sometimes a certain open door, an opportunity for the work to expand and to deliver the message to more people might cost a lot of money. It might require other sacrifices. And sometimes all the resources needed for such a venture won't always be immediately available. 
And that's where the faith comes in. Mr. Armstrong was a powerful example of living faith. He knew that he had support from the brethren, and he knew above all that he had the support from God, so he stepped out in faith, took that Sunday radio slot. That was the first point in his three-point plan. And then the second point was a news magazine focusing on news as it relates to Bible prophecy. This was a dream, a long-time dream for Mr. Armstrong to make plain the revealed truth of the Bible and to make that truth available for free. He did this through the plain truth. So his radio broadcast started on the first Sunday of 1934, and then his very first issue of the Plain Truth magazine was published on February 1st, 1934. Mr. Armstrong said, or should I say published? (laughs) No publication ever made a more humble entrance before the public. Yes, it started small, as so many undergoings, undertakings in God's work often do. But look where they end up. Mr. Armstrong's television program, which started out as a radio broadcast but later went on to TV too, ended up being on hundreds of TV stations, more than any other religious broadcast of the century The Plain Truth got over 8 million subscribers, more than all the prominent magazines combined, like Time and Newsweek. So that was the second of the three-point plan, this magazine. Radio, then the magazine, and then the third point was public appearance campaigns. So first, people come across the radio program. And then on the radio program, Mr. Armstrong would offer the plain truth. And then in the plain truth, he could advertise public appearance campaigns coming to a city near you. And there is a different energy when you get to meet or see the speaker in person and kind of get more of a sense of what he's really like. You can see up close and discern whether God really is working in that man. So this was 1934. In mid-September, Mr. Armstrong wanted to start up another personal appearance campaign swing. He had been doing it in Eugene for about five and a half months, and now he wanted to start another one. So 12 to 15 miles northwest of Eugene in a little town called Alvador, he started another campaign. This lasted from November 1934 until January 1935. As I mentioned, last week, Mr. Armstrong had only done three nights a week on that campaign in Eugene earlier in 1934, and he didn't think that had built up enough momentum 
meeting by meeting because it wasn't every single night. So in Alvador for this new campaign, he started speaking six nights a week. This was either six or eight weeks. Mr. Armstrong couldn't quite remember. Either way, six nights a week for perhaps 36 or more meetings. Mr. Armstrong wrote on page 459 of his autobiography, again available to you for free at thetrumpet.com, attendance was good. Interest was very good. By this time, I was gaining in speaking ability due to the experience of speaking virtually six to eight times a week since July 1933. And then under the subhead, learning to speak publicly, one learns to speak before the public by speaking. I remember how one asked Albert Hubbard how he learned to write. He replied that he learned to write by writing. A pianist learns to play the piano by playing the piano eight hours a day if one is to become a concert pianist. Now, this is really a helpful, if very simple, point. And this can apply to all of us at times when we fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm just not very good at doing this and probably never will be. I'm just not wired to do this well. I'm not built to do something like that. And yet, the only way we get good at something is by simply doing it over and over and over again, doing it the right way with the right technique or the right fundamentals, which requires a little bit of basic knowledge to start off usually. But if we just keep on going at it, we can get better at whatever the activity might be. We can learn all about new talents and skills or we can pick up a new subject in education, whatever. Doesn't matter how old we are, how tired we are, <laughs> how lacking in skill, natural ability we think we might be. We get better by simply doing. Anything we set our mind to we can improve in, and rather drastically. That is the miracle of the human mind that God has given us. More powerful, more capable than a supercomputer. It's just that we don't necessarily utilize it as well as we should. So, Mr. Armstrong understood this, having that no-quit, persevering mentality. Such a helpful lesson to be reminded of from time to time. He continues here, If there was anything I had never expected to become, it was a preacher or an evangelist. <laughs> and that's pretty much always the case. Anytime God calls someone into the ministry to be his servant, it's practically the last thing they would have wanted. It's not an easy job. It's not a comfortable job. 
Now, the serving aspect of it is certainly very rewarding. Any minister could surely tell you that. It's just not what we would necessarily choose. You wouldn't choose that. I wouldn't choose that. God has to be the one to choose that. When we desire that type of position or authority, that can usually lead to a, a wrong, inordinate desire, and that can lead to abusing authority. That's why God has to give us that interest and call us into it. And then usually after, usually after we receive authority, we can get excited about it a little bit more so that we get good at it. But Mr. Armstrong never really thought about preaching, speaking in public. Again, it is certainly the most terrifying thing for the average person, speaking in front of people. Most people would rather die than have to speak in front of other people for some reason. Mr. Armstrong did take an aptitude test. He realized that he was more of a natural in writing. He thought maybe God would use him as a writer and not so much as a speaker. Mr. Armstrong perhaps limited himself a bit in the area of speaking. He undersold his ability to get really, really good at speaking. So he thought if God could use him, as he was eventually called into the ministry in 1931, it would probably be more as a writer and not so much as a speaker. Mr. Armstrong did understand that he had the gift of understanding what the Bible actually says. You recall probably that Mr. Armstrong did have to be humbled. He did have to admit that he was wrong regarding the Sabbath day, regarding, well, a lot of, a lot of uh, doctrinal issues. He also had to prove for himself that he was right when it came to evolution, that evolution is wrong. So Mr. Armstrong was proven wrong about the Sabbath, in fact, we are supposed to keep the Sabbath to this day. Mr. Armstrong found that out by being forced to study into that subject to save his own marriage. And he also was forced to study into evolution when a scholarly relative mocked him for not believing in it. And at least in that case, he was proven right. But this started out a lifelong good habit for Mr. Armstrong of always taking the time to thoroughly prove whatever he believed. This gets us back to the scripture from the start of the show. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Mr. Armstrong knew that you shouldn't speak up unless you're 100% sure that you're right. You should not step out and criticize people unless you know what you're talking about, 
reminds me of that phrase, if you come at the king, you best not miss. It can be <laughs> rather risky in a lot of situations to speak up. And especially if we speak up in ignorance, in prideful, arrogant ignorance, it is going to bring about our destruction, our fall from grace. Mr. Armstrong was <laughs> the tool of destruction for some prideful people who decided to come to his personal appearance campaigns and heckle him. It, it just seemed like it kept on happening throughout 1933, 1934, 1935, every year when he's holding these various campaigns in different locations around Oregon, it's like no one learned their lesson. Maybe, maybe the, the new towns where Mr. Armstrong was visiting needed advance warning from the people who attended previous campaigns, just telling them, you better not speak up because you'll be proven wrong in a very embarrassing public way. So this is what happened in Alvador in late 1934, early 1935, during his six-night-a-week personal appearance, public appearance campaign. There was, as Mr. Armstrong wrote, an ill-advised man who arose and began to heckle. Remember, Mr. Armstrong was getting really good at speaking because he had been doing it six nights a week for about a whole year straight by this point. He was getting really good at understanding the Bible because he had to be constantly studying into it to be able to speak that often about it, about the truth. So as Mr. Armstrong was rapidly transitioning into a master of teaching from the Bible, this was probably the worst possible time for someone to come at him. Now, this heckler was talking about the teaching that Jesus Christ was not resurrected on Sunday morning. Commonly, it is believed that he was. That is why Easter is always on a Sunday. The Bible also does not say to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but to commemorate his death. But if we are trying to look into the resurrection, we should realize that it did take place toward the end of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath afternoon or evening, the day before Sunday. But this heckler at Mr. Armstrong's lecture did not believe this. And he didn't even want to wait until he heard Mr. Armstrong's explanation. He ignorantly just believed what he had been taught without having questioned those people for some reason. 
But he did decide to question Mr. Armstrong. So Mr. Armstrong says, and this is recounted on starting on page 463 of the autobiography. Mr. Armstrong says in front of everybody, now I'll tell you what we'll do. You just be seated until the close of the sermon and start hunting for that passage in your Bible. So the passage that would prove that Christ was resurrected on Sunday instead of Saturday evening. He said, you won't need to listen to the sermon because you won't believe a, a thing I say anyway. And you only listen in order to go around the neighborhood trying to confuse others and to refute everything I am preaching. Now, I strongly advise you to ad utilize every single minute between now and the end of the sermon hunting that text because you are going to need a lot more time than that to find what simply isn't there. Then at the close of the sermon, I am going to call on you to stand up again and to read to us out of the Bible where it says that Christ actually rose on Sunday morning. He, Mr. Armstrong explained here, I had become a little provoked by this man's persistent opposition and determined to make an example of him and end any influence he possibly might have once for all. This approach by Mr. Armstrong is certainly biblical, a public sin, so to speak, or a public confrontation needs to be addressed publicly. That is a biblical principle. Also, the fact that Mr. Armstrong was doing this with the right motivation, because he knew that this man had been trying to deceive all of the other attendees of the meeting. He'd attend a lecture at night, then go around to the attendees during the daytime and try to put doubt in their minds about what Mr. Armstrong had so thoroughly proven to them the night before. So by the end of this message, the man still hadn't found any biblical proof that Christ rose from the grave on Sunday. And he tried some more maybe to look for the answer after the message. He probably should have looked a lot harder during the message. Finally, Mr. Armstrong gives him a chance to stand up and publicly refute everything Mr. Armstrong had just taught. He said, we are waiting and then Mr. Armstrong explains, I let at least three minutes of dead silence elapse. It seemed more like an hour. I purposely let it become embarrassing to let the truth sink deep in the audience. Mr. Armstrong explained how the sign of Jonah means that Jonah being in the belly of a whale three days and three nights is a parallel to how long Christ would spend in the grave. So Wednesday through Saturday, essentially. That is a parallel, and he, he thoroughly proved the rest of it. You can find more about that here in the autobiography, chapter 33. But he said on page 464, 
This was the only time I have ever made a laughing stock out of any man before others, to my knowledge. But this man had been spending weeks trying to discredit me and God's truth, and I felt it was the way to defend the truth for the good of all. There's another story here at the end of this chapter, somewhat similar but more in private, where a family Mr. Armstrong was working with had been deceived by a couple of ministers, false ministers, for years about a different subject. And Mr. Armstrong met with the family. He met with these two false ministers. And he proved to that family, right in front of those false ministers, how they had been deceived for many years. And it was a humiliating experience for those false ministers. But again, they were the ones posing a threat to the spiritual lives of others. And they had to be stopped, especially when this family was showing interest in the truth. So Mr. Armstrong did sometimes have to, in a, in a somewhat embarrassing manner, prove other people wrong for the benefit of those who really did want to know the truth. Now, this also underscores a larger lesson for all of us, whether members of the Philadelphia Church of God today or just anyone who experiences any authority at all. Now, within God's church, there are ministers, there is a government structure, and the ministers are not here to oppress the people. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 24 calls the ministers helpers of your joy. They can give counsel inspired by God that will improve your life, that will show you clearly the way to happiness if you've been struggling to find it. It is God's family government. We have a booklet available to you for free by that title at thetrumpet.com, written by PCG Pastor General Gerald Flurry. It is family government. The ministers approach elderly members as they would approach their own parents. They approach the younger members as they would their own sons and daughters, all in love and with deep respect, trying to uphold the dignity of everyone with whom they interact. And yet sometimes the tendency can be to react with skepticism or heavy critique when God's government issues a decision or makes a recommendation. And this has always happened throughout history, even going back to the ancient nation of Israel, but even in God's church, too, throughout the, the, the centuries, where there can just be a building up of gossip and just speaking ill of certain decisions that are made. But Hebrews chapter 7 makes it very clear the type of reverence we should have, especially for godly authority. 
Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conduct. So remember them, those who have been given an office of authority over you, especially the ones within God's church, these helpers of your joy, these servants of God, these ministers, our default should be to trust them and value what they have to say, not to doubt or criticize them or talk bad about them to others. Their authority should be upheld. And the reason I mention this is because what about these people Mr. Armstrong had to deal with at his campaigns? If they had any respect for God's government, if they had any discernment to be able to see that God was using Mr. Armstrong, do you think they would have ever dared interrupt his lecture like that and heckle him? That is just unacceptable. And God hates that. He, he uses human beings. And it's not that we need to worship a man or anybody, but we should value that office. It's about the office God gives to human beings. We have to deeply respect that. God's work operates because of a certain government structure. It's all done in love. And we should realize who is behind the human beings in charge. And even if, even if it's not an authority figure in God's church, anyone we're dealing with in the world, it could be a boss, it could be a spouse. Is the respect there? Are we remembering the roles God has given to us and given to those other people? And knowing our place, staying in our lane, realizing that pride comes before the fall, Certainly, when we have a deeper respect for government, it will give us pause before we try to heckle or before we get into a bad attitude. Mr. Armstrong was in the process of raising up the most powerful work ever in the history of God's church for almost 2,000 years of its existence. And yet people like this sought to, tore, to tear him down. We can't allow ourselves to fall into that kind of an attitude. So this is really just a powerful chapter. Chapter 33 of the autobiography. God does back his leader. He does back his work. And we all have to do our part to be enthusiastically supportive of that government structure so that it all works out the best way possible. And so that our own individual lives are blessed. We will be so much better for it if we throw ourselves behind that government structure so that the work can move forward so much faster. Thanks so much for listening today. 
I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 1130 a.m. Central Time 